across Northern Ireland, on your radio and on BBC Sounds. This is The Stephen Nolan Show. Good morning, everyone. Welcome along to this uh, podcast from the BBC. Uh, it is Monday. The What date is it today? I need a wee holiday. It's the 19th of February. Um, on the podcast today, so on the weekend, at the weekend, uh, on Saturday night, I believe, at the Devonish and Finnegy in Belfast, a group of male strippers stripped off completely nude. Everything gone. And their videos circulating on social media with some people loving it and some people outraged. So is it all just a bit of fun or did they go too far? Excuse me. All disgust. And mini eggs for breakfast this morning. It wasn't good. And we struggled, we struggled. Um, all disgust on, on the programme this morning. The Stephen Nolan Show! Good morning. Just a, a warning that we're talking about adult content and references to sex at the top of the show this morning. So if there are any kids listening, you might want um, to send them elsewhere. On Saturday night, the Devonish Complex in Finicky, Belfast, put on a show with strippers, male strippers, fully uh, nude, simulating sex acts. Some of the audience really enjoyed it. (laughs) Now, is this adult harmless fun in 2024? Or is it degrading and humiliating, as one person is quoted in the Belfast Telegraph um, as saying? 03030805555 is the number to call this morning. Uh, The owner and director of Pleasure Boys, XXL, uh, has agreed to speak to us this morning as soon as he comes through um, on the line. Um, we'll get them on. Videos um, are circulating on uh, social media um, of uh, these strippers completely nude uh, with some people lying on the floor with the strippers on top of them. It's a no-holds-barred performance and it is the talk um, of social media, these videos doing the rounds. Until we get the owner and director of uh, the company that put this on, Pleasure Boys. Um, let's speak to Siobhan O'Connor, the commentator this morning, and the Belfast Telegraph columnist Malachi O'Doherty. Uh, Siobhan, good morning. Good morning, Stephen. Morning, good morning. Malachi, morning to you. Morning, uh, Stephen. Morning, 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 Siobhan. What do you think, Siobhan? Morning, um, I, it doesn't take a lot to shock me, but I am... Um, sorry, it takes a lot, a lot normally to shock me. I am shocked by the videos the viral videos that are going around. It is demeaning to the men who are performing what looks like acts and to the women watching. But the women seem to be lapping it up. If there was women on the stage going around half-naked simulating acts like that, sexual acts, there'd be outrage. It'd be burn the brow, it would be back in force. And I think the pendulum has swung too far. And it's like almost like the men are being... 
pride on almost. You know, obviously they are well, willing. It was it was but advertised. Women are willing as well. It was advertised by the definition Belfast as a Valentine's weekend special. Uh, they they called it quote a night filled with exciting thrills, perfect for a girls' night out. Malachi, I'll come to you in a second. John Woodward owns uh, and is the director of Pleasure Boys. Good morning to you, John. Good morning. Good morning. So a lot of controversy, a lot of people talking about this on social media, John. I know you're in the airport. Thank you for speaking to us. Um, how was this not over the top? I think this has probably been blown up a lot more over here because people are not quite used to what our show is. I mean, we are a, we are a fully nude male review show. Well, a fully nude male review show, um, how is that befitting uh, to to somewhere like Belfast, to somewhere like the Devonish? And Siobhan O'Connor is saying this morning, and other people are saying it too, it's degrading, John. Absolutely not, no. You're just giving somebody, some ladies, you know, guys, whoever turn up to the show, you're just giving them a bit of a release, a bit of entertainment something that they don't generally get anywhere else, you know. But why do you think it's not anywhere else? Well, because it's a special, it's like a special event. It's not something that you're going to just see walking down your street. You know, you, you, you go pay for a ticket to come to one of our shows and there's there's dancing, there's there's fire, there's acrobatics, and then there's obviously the nudity, which is the, the ending. Acrobatics? The, 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 the men leaning their crotch over the faces of women. That's acrobatics, no, the, is it? This is the, the... I think the video that you've actually seen is the video of the ending. And it's where pretty much the, the girls had stormed the stage. So this wasn't planned. This was something that just happened at the at the end of the evening. So all of the other videos, there's, there's probably 15 different shows leading up to that. And this was the finale where the guys come out and take a bow. Well, they, 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 everyone they, came onto the stage. Well, and when everyone came onto the stage, the, the guys certainly did not take a bow. And, no, no, no. And, they and, took and, a bow and before the, the video yeah, started. But they didn't then leave the stage, did they? No, they carried on dancing with the girls. Their genitalia was touching the women. They was they was fully nude at the point when the stage uh, got stormed. And they lent... So obviously they carried on. Yeah, they're, they, not, well, they're not just going to just walk off the stage at that point. They sort of uh, make it make it look a little bit more fun, you know? Which, and, yeah, did, and did you, get a bit out of that. <laughs> your, your performers were walking up to people in the audience. and, and um, Yes, like they do. I'm not saying that some of the people in the audience were pushing them away, anything but, but there was, they were very, very close to, to each other. So what's, what's the difference between what happened at this Valentine's Day special and some type of... I don't know, some type of sexual performance. Well, there was absolutely no no sexual contact like that within the show. Everything that we do, uh, it's crowd participation and everything is simulated. So it, there's, there's absolutely no sort of sexual acts going on during the show. Uh, are you surprised with the reaction, John? Yes, we are, yeah. I mean, obviously everybody's talking about it in Belfast. Uh, we don't tend to get this sort of reaction in the UK. Some people are outraged, um, and other people 
fully enjoyed the show. Do, 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 do you think it would have been different and would have been seen as different if it had have been women? Wouldn't have happened, would it? Like, we don't I've have that. We don't... To a, I've never been to a female show like that, to be fair, so I, I can't really comment. There is no female show like that anywhere in Northern Ireland, ever. Oh, OK. And the, 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 the performers, John, where do they come from? Who are they? So we, we are the UK Pleasure Boys, and we're currently performing our XXL tour throughout the UK and Ireland. And how do you get a job with you? Well, you, you have to have training, first of all, because like I say, we've got speciality acts, we've got aerial, we've got acrobatics, we've got fire acts, angle grinding. So we, we have to get all of the choreography correct. Maliki, what do you think? Well, I mean, uh, my personal opinion is that is, if people know what they're getting and they're paying for it, and, and uh, you know, then that's it. They're entitled to have it. I wouldn't ban it myself. I do think that the, Siobhan makes an interesting point about um, whether the men themselves are exploited, because this was the main feminist argument that was used against the Belfast Lap Dancing Club, which we had in Botanic Avenue about 20 years ago, and which was closed by the, by the council. Because, uh, you know, presumably, I mean, I think Jim Rogers at the time expressed the fear that it was about, that it was about the exploitation of women. So you have to transfer that argument onto this and say, well, are these men being exploited? Do they want to do this? Uh, or have, are the choices limited in any way? Uh, who are they? I think, I think we want reassurances like that. But I think also going by the precedent of the lap dancing club, and the legislation, the definition would surely have required a sex establishment license uh, to put on that show last night. Uh, you know, the, the lap dancing club, as I understand it, was closed uh, when such a license was denied. Well, John Woodward is making it very clear there was no sex. Well, I mean, there's no sex in a lap dancing club either. It was simply women taking their clothes off and disporting themselves around poles, you know, or dancing before clients. So I don't see any difference between what we saw in video and what you would see in a lap dancing club, other than that it was make naked men rather than naked women. So, what, what, what type of licence is required, John Woodward, to do what you do? Who controls it? I'm not it? quite sure what the licence is in Ireland, but in the UK you have a, a special events licence, like a boxing licence, um, a stripper licence. There's, there's several events that venues can have, and I think they get 12 a year. Why, John, do, do you have to go the whole hog? If this is all about performance, what, 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 why don't they keep a, I don't know, a G-string on? Why full nudity? We, we do both shows. But the majority of what we actually are asked to do is the full Monty because people want that. Um, they want that ending, whereas the guys are, are quite large. They're quite well-endowed guys. So, you know, they want that ending and they want to see something that they don't see every day. Siobhan? I did notice that, yeah. Um, the largeness you point out there. And also the fact that the women seemed so almost, as you say, storming the stage, like caged animals let out. And look, you know, is it the female want? You know, is there the market there? I know people are shocked. But I felt for those men. 
I really did. And, you know, as a woman, I've seen it myself at events where, you know, in rugby clubs, they've had men who have auctioned themselves off. And the women just at the end of these events were like crazed by it, almost like were let out. And I felt uncomfortable sitting there because I felt for the men on sale at the particular event I was at. And I felt the same feeling watching the videos that the men, I don't know, were they enjoying it or were they feeling under pressure to perform like that? It just it, it felt a bit bizarre. Are they being exploited, those men, John? No, 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 absolutely not. I mean, we, we, we've seen quite a few different scenarios wherever we've travelled through Europe or even in the UK. Um, the guys enjoy what they do. Um, they just have to be ready for things that that happen like what happened on saturday night where everyone sort of stormed the stage you know well well look i I, these videos are circulating everywhere there is no way that these men were standing on on the stage and were stormed and reluctantly had to cope with with women storming at them they were walking fully naked approaching people in the audience approaching people at their tables waving themselves into the camera. Yes, well, that, that is pretty normal, you know, like to, to get around so everybody gets a visual. Um, people standing in the way sometimes, so if they were to just stay on the stage, not everybody would get a, a proper view, you know. Paul's in Belfast. What do you think, Paul? First call of the day. Good morning. Good morning, Stephen. Stephen, look, I'm not an old prude or anything like that. I'm not far from it, but I'm going to tell you something. Do you ever see 100 men hard at all any day of the year and had naked women and treating naked women like that on the on the stage or on the dance floor? I'm going to tell you, that's where it's Belfast. See all the Sinn Féin women? The Sinn Féin's follow all the women, Matt. All the, all the woke brigade. They'd all be up there. Well, Sinn Féin is not full of all the woke brigade. Don't be ridiculous. Uh, yeah, uh, but... yeah, well, look, no, you're being ridiculous. You're being ridiculous. You, you're trying to be like uh, devil's advocate here. I know what I'm talking about. They'll be up outside that day and they should be going mad, be going ballistic. The police will be up there making, uh, following up complaints against women being touched inappropriately. Now I'm going to tell you, them men think are in control of that situation. And that them women's in control of that situation. Them women are sitting there in control of that situation. They paid in there, they knew they were going into, and they took advantage of that situation and made food out themselves alcohol. Yes. Full of drink and losing control. And I'm going to tell you, see any man that's married a woman there who's doing it, or any man has daughters in there doing it, they need to sit them down and talk them and make it clear this isn't good enough. Because see if I was there with my sons, because there's women there would have went with their daughters and their, and their daughters in laws. I'm going to tell you, see if I was there with my sons behaving like that, what I'd do, mate. I'd hang myself off a tree with disgrace and shame. Well, no, 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 you wouldn't. You wouldn't. Yeah. No, no, and we're not, we're not uh, comfortable with descriptions um, like that. Uh, Malachi, the counter argument is it's a bit of fun. All the adults knew what they were buying into, and 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 the men know what they're doing. It's what they're choosing to do as a living. Yeah, but I think your caller there has a point because if you if you accept that argument in relation to to male strippers, then you have to transfer it across surely to female strippers as well. I mean, it used to be that the the strip show was was a very common part of uh, of entertainment, certainly in in Britain. There used to be a strip show in the Harp Bar uh, in Belfast, uh, and and those things were all closed down as a result, I, I suppose, of a of a fear that they were about the exploitation of women. 
that they were with the sexual objectification of women, that this was indignified. This was part of, a, a you know, the general feminist argument uh, about the quality of the sexes and that, that uh, the women should be treated with respect and in public spaces and shouldn't be in danger of being exploited or recruited into demeaning work. So th- those arguments then have to be transferred to men, you know, as well, or back from the if you're allowing the men back from the, to the women. So, so I think that's interesting. But it does seem clear as well that women in shows like this behave differently from how men behave in them. You know, I remember once going. Uh, I mean, I I'll let you know this. I played a practical joke on my sister once by arranging to meet her in the hard bar during a strip show. You know, and and it was just a joke. But essentially, we were in the hard bar during a strip show. Men sit around, drink their pint. And they're watching a woman up on the on the stage, uh, taking her clothes off to music and, and walking off. And nobody was storming the stage. You know, nobody was was going wild with with uh, with enthusiasm or passion. Um, so so men in those cities, you know, if you'd had the lap dancing club in Botanic, uh, the, the movie cafe, I think it was called, if you'd had men storming the women there, that would have been a policing matter. That would have been something that was would have been extremely worrying. Uh, and, a, and a security issue. Whereas it seems to me that, that John is, is quite happy. John Woodward is quite uh, quite happy with the idea of uh, of women storming the stage and 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 lunging themselves at those men. John, you said that control was lost at the end. What happened? Always won. Oh, thank you, Chess. Sorry, sorry, I'm just going through security. No problem. No uh, problem. Yeah. So, um, the basically the boys come out and do uh, take a bow, and then. They're obviously fully nude. That's the curtain call, which is the finale of the show. And what happened then is several people started to come up. And before you knew it, you'd had majority of the room that was on that, that stage area. Was there much security? Um, no, no, there wasn't, because usually we wouldn't really need it for this. But sometimes once you get maybe you know, five or ten people on, on the actual stage, everybody else then starts to do the same thing, you know. So are you suggesting that it's only in Belfast that the women were out of control? Are you suggesting this doesn't happen all the time? Just this particular show. So it doesn't help happen elsewhere? No, you get, you get from time to time you will get an event like this. And just people are just so excited and, you know, the alcohol's mixed in with excitements and then just things happen like this you know what does the law say john well providing there's no actual sexual activity i can't see that there's anything within the law that's gonna it's gonna say anything about that really you know so if a naked man is leaning over the face of a woman that's not sexual activity no providing there's no contact and if there is contact if there's contact, then we just try and move away from that. And you, you think the you think the video footage shows your man moving away? Do you? Well, there wasn't actually contact in the videos that I've seen. There wasn't actually contact from the boys to the people in a sexual way. It was all dancing, even though they were nude. It just looks a little bit more extreme. You you see people dancing all fours, do you? Yes, well, they, they were nude, so, you know, they were, they were doing normal dancing, hovering over ladies. Uh, there was gents getting onto the stage. 
um, not our gents, you know, people that were in the crowd itself. Paddy's in Belfast. Morning, Paddy. Good morning, Stephen. How are you? Go ahead, Paddy. Right, that was uh, the people had the them ladies had to buy tickets for that show the other night. They all seemed to quite enjoy it. I've seen a couple of videos. I don't think there's any harm. Them boys are performers. But for that fella to, to talk to you a couple of months ago, starting to bring Sinn Féin in it, why is he bringing politics in their private show? People had to buy them tickets. Them boys are paid for the performance. And the, the, as, as i seen, fair play them. They, they put on a great show. So what are you saying? Are you saying, look, this is a bit of fun. Everybody knew what they were getting. Move on. Well, is that what you're saying? I think if you're good, uh, going to put uh, a couple of hundred women in the room, if fellas run the boot with their machachos out, you, you don't know what you're going to get, to be honest. These people, they and women pay for their tickets, but why should that fella bring politics in the way? Should he bring Sinn Féin in it? Wasn't Sinn Féin that organised it? Well, Sinn Féin has nothing that's, to do with it. Exactly, that's why I'm wondering why is he bringing politics in the, in the private show that people bought tickets for? I can't understand it. This place is crazy. There's that fella talking about politics, bringing Sinn Féin in it. For, uh, for people buying tickets for a, a show, the performers performed and people loved it. It's a talk of the town and what an advertisement too. Brilliant. Fair play to Paddy, thank you. Brian and then the skillin. Morning, Brian. Hey, Stephen. Monday again. Um, I think if I was a business owner in Belfast, I'd be content not to have this type of so-called advertising from your previous caller. I think it is completely degrading for men and young men particularly that have to sort of be a certain way in today's society as well. Apart from all that, what's the calibre of person that goes to that? Is it not one of the most trashy, disgusting things that I have heard come across in Radio Ulster, probably in all of my time? I would have it banned. Our society in Northern Ireland should be as clean as we can get it, and we have enough trouble cleaning up the drug scumbags without having this behaviour. And God help um, the taxi drivers that would have had to deal with this afterwards. And last but not least, to me, it sounds like it's badly managed. The stage was overrun. Well, certainly to me, there should be some sort of health and safety involvement here immediately to find out why this, you're, the guy... Well, people like, Ma- like Malachy are saying, look, it's a bit of fun. Like, no. John, you put this show on, you put this show on, John, around the UK, do you? Yes, we're working regularly three, four times a week, and and it's only in, in it's only in Northern Ireland that you've got this type of reaction, is it? Yes, yeah, it's never gone uh, it's never gone this viral before, but you know you got to you got to remember that there's a lot of emotions here. People are stressed. They got you know they've got stressful jobs. Why can't they just go and have a release? This particular part at the end of the night didn't go as planned, but the rest of the night did, and everybody had a great night. Just describe to me what happened then in the rest of the night so we get a fair picture here. So what did they do? So you start with uh, a group routine, which is a bit of a, a dance routine to reigning men. Guys do choreography with umbrellas and things. There's nobody coming up on the stage at this point. Then we go to speciality acts where you do hand balance, um, acro, stuff like that. Then you get into just normal routines where they would be in towels, and then the reveal happens around about a third of the way, a third to half of the way in is where you see your first fully nude act. And then from that moment on is where you get nudity throughout the evening. And do you perform on stage? I have done. I've, I've stripped for around about 30 years. I'm retired now, so what's I the, just manage the act. What's the appeal of it, John? 
but besides the money, like having women and and possibly men, you know, clawing at you and 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 lusting after you, does that not wear off after the appeal of that not wear off after a couple of nights? Is it, I think is maybe it, when you first start, it's um, it's it's a little bit intimidating because it's not normal. It's not it's not what every normal person does. But then, once you've done this for several weeks and months. It's really, really, it's enjoyable. I enjoy being with the boys. The boys enjoy traveling around all different parts of Europe. And at the same time, they're getting a lot of female attention, which every man wants. And they get very, very, very well paid for it as well. Siobhan? Uh, I, I feel if I was there and maybe not drinking alcohol, I would have been more shocked. It seemed like there was a mix of high energy and desperation from the women and maybe a lot of drinks as well. And also, I would love to know what happened afterwards. Do the dancers just go home? We, uh, I also we, think uh, women going to shows like this have to be wary of being filmed on, um, on mobile phones because, I mean, you go to a show like that, you are going to... Go, well, they do, obviously did go a bit wild, but I mean, how do the women feel today when their images are on Facebook and, and other videos are on social media and, and their neighbours now know that they got drunk out of their heads on Saturday night and, and threw themselves at naked men? I mean, that's a, that's a worry for them. How do the husbands feel? Yeah. Well, absolutely. You know, so you do need some kind of protection. If, if women are going to go into an environment like that, you need some protection for them as well against being exposed. I mean, if people want to go into a situation which is, which is back an alien to the, you know, uh, and, and that is not the normal way they live, and clearly it's not the normal way they live or they wouldn't have uh, got so, uh, they wouldn't have shrieked and gone crazy there. So if they're going to let themselves go in that way as an exception to the normal routine of their lives, then they need to be uh, protected within that. And that would mean, surely, yeah, that, that, that nobody would be filming them. Well, Matthew, I think John has a good point. He's saying that they knew what they were going into, the women. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> they, they, did they? I mean, uh, John himself talks about the reveal at a certain stage. I don't know what, whether the advertising... Uh, I don't know. But but certainly, I, I do think that the women in the show... The, well, sorry, the women in the audience went wild in a way that they perhaps didn't expect themselves to to go wild. Well, just on on this very point, Erin in Belfast. Hello, Erin. Hiya, Stephen. Go ahead. Thanks for calling us. Stephen, I would just like to make a point clear that uh, the women who attended this show didn't know that it was going to be truly naked men. The Davinish itself has put out to say that it was supposed to be a Magic Mike rip-off show. A what? Like a Magic Mike show. Not naked. I think it's absolutely awful that there's men on your show degrading women for going at paying for something they didn't know was going to happen. Okay, it went a bit far. And for people to mention stuff about suicide and like it's going a bit far. I have a best friend who went last night and her name's being tarnished all over social media for dancing with a fella. We're going to move on from this in a few minutes' time, but just a, a reminder you don't want kids listening uh, to the segment we're currently talking about. It's about an adult show that happened in the Devonish complex in Finnegy uh, in Belfast. Erin, you're suggesting that your friend didn't know what she was going to get? No. She must have been shocked then. Yes, there were. So, what? It was obviously a bit of fun, you know. So, 
Did she enjoy it? Yeah, they all had a good night. <laughs> so what's the problem then? It's the suggestion that... Well, you, I don't want to put words in your mouth. What, what are you telling me is the problem? That obviously, there's been videos that have surfaced of what went on at the end of the night. And these videos have been put on social media. There has been WhatsApp groups, um, people being circled in the videos of them dancing, along with their Facebook pictures, and rumours being spread about these ladies. That's not fair. Were you there? No, it's a a best friend of mine, and it's it's not going well, you know. Is she devastated? Yes, of course. Tell me why. Because she went out for a bit of fun, you know. Yes, it was. They said it was fun and it it was awkward because they weren't expecting that at the end. But obviously, all the ladies fed along, and now she's her name's being tarnished all over social media for doing the same thing that all them women did, which was have a bit of fun and enjoy like joining on a dance. And you've spoken to her clearly. Yes. What is she saying to you? She's upset. Because not only are these videos, they're going along with rumours. John? I, I think that's unfair, that, that people are, are targeting these, you know, some, some of the women are going to the show saying that, um, you know, they, they all got out of hand. Because not everybody got out of hand. And, they were, you know, a lot of people was excited. But, yeah, I don't think it's fair that they, they get sort of targeted by people online. But, unfortunately, that is just what happens online. People all piggyback onto what everybody else is talking about and they've all got a comment even though they've got no clue as to what actually happened on the night you know they're looking at a, a, a few seconds of a video and Damien in Belfast morning Damien hi there um, Stephen just on your last caller there um, she mentioned that they didn't know what they were getting themselves in for the group's called the Pleasure Boys like have you, if you've seen the poster they're all pretty much naked naked on the poster like, yeah, but they're well, not they're not naked. fully naked in the poster. Oh, well, there's not much clothes on them. Um, yeah, so I think that if you go if you go on to the Pleasure Boys online, as if you were going to book them, and it doesn't say nowhere and it like full nudity. But but, but uh, that's but part of the point is uh, like it seems fairly obvious that, that that's what the, the show's about. But on a side point, why why are people getting so worked up about this? Like talking about what would their husbands think? This is 2024. Like, are we are we for real here? Like talking about what their husbands would think. They're, this is consenting adults having a bit of crack. You're talking about, you know, if you look at male culture, you, any stag do you hear about to go to strip clubs, but there's no moral public outrage about that. I, I don't understand the difference. I don't understand why the women are all getting shamed and, you know, this is outrageous and oh my God, they were dancing on stage with these naked men. It was a show. Like, as if the, you know, the strippers and, and male, or like in, when males go to strip clubs and, you know, the woman press her boobs or gets them or whatever. Like, what's, what's the difference? I don't, I don't understand the difference. Where's the moral outrage there? No, I, I totally agree. I just... Okay, so, you know, the, the women were perfectly entitled to have a good time. They shouldn't be shamed on social media. It's, it's... Definitely not. And it's men on here whose wives and daughters weren't even at it and they're degrade- saying that it's degrading for women. Uh, they just sound like they were disappointed they weren't at the show. Yeah. So, 
Yeah, I just I just think the whole puritanical outrage is ridiculous and comments like vile and disgusting and all like you know, mm-hmm. it, it has to be fair. So we're either saying that all strippers, um, male and female, are absolutely violent, disgusting, and the people who go to them are violent, disgusting, or they're not. We can't have, you know, we can't have one set of rules for one gender and one set of rules for another. Mm-hmm. Are, are you confident, uh, John Woodward, finally, that the people in the Devonish, the audience uh, who bought a ticket, knew what to expect? Well, we've, we've been a, a group around for many many years so yes i think people should well if if they're not quite sure maybe just check the websites you know just check out some previous events no but this is if you're purchasing a ticket to come to our show you would expect that you know you're going to check the guys out first and see who you're going to see i mean me personally if i was going to go and see a female strip act i'd be looking at seeing where they've been before and seeing what and what do you, sort of do, type do, of girls do are, you, you know? advertise on your website that it's going to be full nudity? On the website, it's got all of the terms, it's got all of the guys. Um, on the social media is where you see what's happened in the shows previously. So you get to see on the shows. There's, there's regular reels, there's regular updates and posts and things like that. It's, it's very, very hard to miss what we do as a group. Is this business big money? Yes, the guys get pretty, pretty well paid. They do, um, you know, they do a lot of online stuff as well. So the videos and stuff like that, they they do online. So there's there's virtual strips. You know, there's uh, they, they they do quite well out of it. I think the most important thing of, of, of today, John, I'll let you go. I know you're in the airport. Thank you for speaking to me this morning. Uh, Siobhan and Maliki, thank you for right, speaking so to me. Thanks, guys. Thank you very much. Erin, the most important thing today, we, we, we hope that your friend is okay. Mm-hmm. Because the, to, to feel like there's some type of social media pylon on, on, yeah. on an individual is, is not a nice thing at all. Is she getting the, the support that she needs? Yeah. Yeah, she's yeah, she's made it clear to the ones close to her that the rumours aren't true and yeah, she'll be okay. Okay. Just wanna put the message out there that it's not nice to spread rumours and especially for people that weren't there. Okay. Erin, thank you very much. Thank you for talking Hi. to us today. Thank Hi. you. Good morning. Twenty to ten, zero thirty thirty eighty. Uh, 55.55. Next this morning, workers started at Caseman Park this morning to clear the site in preparation for a long-awaited redevelopment of the stadium. Questions still remain over the funding of the project. No agreement in place over how the costs will be covered. The West Belfast venue will primarily be used for GAA games. It's also due to host football matches in the Euro 2028. Uh, our community correspondent, Mark Simpson, with us today. Morning to you, Mark. Morning, Stephen. Good morning, good morning. So talk us through what's happening today, why this is such an important day. Well, the GAA can't start building Casement Park yet because as far as we know, they don't have a builder yet and they don't have the money. But what they can do is start to clear the site just in case so that if the money is found, they can start building immediately. It's a bit like if you're about to have some painting work done in your living room. You clear all the furniture just in case, even though you don't have the money yet to pay the painter. And do we know how much money it's costing? I heard you putting Gordon Lyons, the new communities minister, over this on Wednesday night. I tried on Tuesday... The communities department is in charge of this project. They're not saying. The GAA aren't saying. I would be surprised, though, Stephen, if between us we don't get a number by the end of this week.
Uh, why? Why do you think we'll get it? Because I think these pictures today of work starting to clear the site will focus minds. There's been some speculation in the Dublin papers over the weekend that the Irish government is ready to say how much they're going to contribute. And the third thing is the fact that Gordon Lyons is due to answer questions in the Assembly tomorrow afternoon. One way or another, I think we're going to get some answers soon. And, and Mark, if, if, that, if that work has started, is it conceivable that it wouldn't finish? Well, it's a bit like preparing your living room. You can do all the preparations and turn it into a brownfield site ready for someone to come along and put 45 or what is it, 34,500 seats in. But until you get the money, it's just going to lie there waiting and waiting and waiting. But time is running out, Stephen. I'm told if work doesn't start by the start of the summer, there's no way this project is going to be ready in time for the Euros. And talk us through the the economics of this, Mark, for as much as you can, in terms of is the GAA willing to put more money in than they initially offered as their slice? In theory, no. In practice, yes. The GAA originally agreed to pay around 20% of the overall price, 15 million of around 77 million. And one would imagine that if the overall cost doubles or trebles, the GAA will come under pressure to pay around 20% of the overall price too. But as things stand, they're saying it's take it or leave it with 15 million. I don't think that is sustainable if we are talking about something in terms of more than £200 million. Okay, Mark, thank you very much indeed. The Brendan McGrew, commentator from SPAD, with us today, as is Ben Laurie from the newsletter. Morning, Brendan. Good morning, Stephen. Good morning, Good morning, Ben. Good morning. Well, Ben, is today a good day when, when we see work started? Well, I mean, the Euros coming to Northern Ireland is a very exciting thing, but uh, I don't think we can get away from the fact that this is a shambolic um, uh, business, that we don't know what this costs, that there's a question mark unless we press ahead not knowing what, what it's cost, or certainly press ahead with the initial work, as Mark was saying, it won't even get done in time. And uh, there has been a loss of control of cost, it seems. Now, the GAA was initially promised as part of the three stadium project. I think a lot of us are sad, by the way, that the, the idea of a single stadium um, mega stadium for, for Northern Ireland never came off and it led to this splintering. But that's what happened and it happened more than a decade ago. Um, the GAA, uh, if it had uh, got its $62 million and, and had been able to press ahead at the time, obviously there have been a lot of difficulties over Casement Park and planning and resident objections and so on. That would be $90 million in today's money. But to put in, per- to put in perspective what this means if, if the incredible of the question that that, that was that, that has been put to Gordon Lyons suggestion that this could hit two hundred million, that would mean that even if they got the index linked inflation linked ninety million based on the money they would have got at the time, which I think most people would say is fair, that's a one hundred and ten million pound shortfall. To put the one hundred and ten million pound shortfall in perspective, we can't even get the main political parties at Stormont to agree with the UK government that out of the colossal potentially four billion pounds that they're going to get from the UK, certainly three point three billion pounds plus, and the trifling one hundred and thirteen million that they were asked to raise, which they won't do, um, could all be swallowed up in the extra costs of casement. 
So, as I said at the beginning, a shambles. Brendan? Well, uh, the project has been beset with problems, Stephen, over this last 10 years. We all know that. But, you know, there's actually a sense of almost relief and certain anticipation amongst uh, GA followers and members and, and I think wider sports fans too that something is happening on the site we're a long way yet from being over the line around funding what it's going to cost and where that comes from but isn't it better to be and I'm outside Kissing Park right now isn't it better to see some work started and I think we're just at a time now where the Irish government are clearly on board we know that the UK government and, and I wouldn't put terrible amount of faith in what Chris Seaton Harris has to say because he changes what he says from day to day but the central UK government, the Department of Culture, Media and Sport, have previously indicated that they will not let the euros fall and through case of not being funded. And we now have an executive back. And I think the Gordon Lyons, in his previous role as an economy minister as well, would have known and would realise the, the importance of investment in jobs and job creation. And there is an economic spin-off as well as a sporting one for Casement. So I think that this is a good day. It's a positive day, finally, after a lot of bad days around Casement. And it's something we should be looking forward to and celebrating rather than just picking holes in it and you know yes we need to get the money right and I think we'll hear something about all of that this week as Mark has indicated so this is a good day for Casey and, 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 and in terms yeah. of getting the money right Brendan the more uh, the UK exchequer the treasury the taxpayer the UK taxpayer puts in the Casement Park should they get more back because all 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 the profits in the future go into GAA don't they yeah, but this, this is how so stadiums... How, how does that how stadiums, stack up? This is, this is how stadiums and infrastructure projects get funded, Stephen. You know, if there's, a, if there's commercial activity at Windsor Park that goes to IFA and soccer, or if there's, if there's a rock concert in Ravenhill, you know, the rugby authorities would, would oversee that and, and take the profits out of that. I've heard should they, though? Years. Should they? Well, yes, yes, when they're going to redevelop and reinvest in their own sports and in the grassroots, you know, this, this, this is how commercial, or sorry, this is how sporting organisations fund themselves. It happens with Wembley, it happens with Crook But they're Park. not funding themselves, are they? The, the, no, the wider I mean, taxpayer fun, sorry, is funding you know, it for them. I, what I mean is, what I'm referring to is funding themselves going forward, funding their coaches, funding their staff, funding their teams. They do it through commercial and ultimately profit-making activity. And yes, governments, governments invest in stadia. That's what they do. Governments invest in infrastructure. That's what they did at Windsor Park. And but see, I don't, I don't know how much these organisations. I genuinely don't, right? So I, I'm, I'm being completely naive because I'm ignorant about this. But I don't know how how wealthy some of these big outfits are. So how much money in the bank? Do you remember when we did Malone uh, the, the the golf clubs yeah. and all of the hundreds of thousands of pounds during COVID, the millions of pounds sometimes that was sent to some of these golf clubs. It was just more money in the bank for them. How much money do these big soccer, GAA, rugby entities have themselves? Well, I, I don't know the, the, the details of those answers, Stephen, but I do know It's relevant, that though, is it in, not? Well, but in GAA terms, I do know that individual county boards, you know, there's 32 of them across across Ireland, and there's London and New York, they, they, they don't run a huge profit. They have, they have big turnovers, but they have big money out uh, every every year as well. So they're not sitting on thousands or millions of pounds. Well, we bank. don't know. The money which comes in is reinvested in teams and facilities other than big city and grassroots facilities and community pitches and, and soccer and, and rugby and, 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 and Gaelic football as well. Uh, so what we do know, I, you know, 
I don't know what the, the, the IFA centrally have or also rugby has in the bank, no idea. But I do know that the GA units, uh, they might turn over money, but they're not sending a million of pounds in the bank. Ben? Well, I also don't know how much they get, but I, I, I think one of the difficulties is is that for anybody who raises questions about this, it can sound sour and so on. And, and that's why I was emphasizing at the beginning that the prospect of the Euros in Northern Ireland is a very wonderful thing. Uh, there's a lot of sadness in many quarters that it wasn't possible to get a um, single stadium and that it's only reasonable that the GAA gets an inflation-linked sum to what it was, to what it was going to get um, if this had happened 10 years ago. But, but, I mean, this shortfall of £110 million, the idea that that could happen without a very, very substantial increase in the contribution from the GAA, which will be the overwhelming beneficiary of this. I'm not sure Brendan is right about stadiums. Certainly governments help with stadiums. There's no doubt about that. Is that the norm? Is that the norm in wealthy organisations like uh, Premiership uh, football clubs? I would imagine that it isn't the norm, but I think that in the same way that we expect Premiership um, football clubs to, uh, to, to, to pay for their magnificent stadiums, I think it's reasonable to ask the question, and it's politicians who can get to the bottom of this most easily, how wealthy is this organisation and um, what is the size of its increased contribution, which is going to have to happen. And I think the other thing to say so is... We, let's remind ourselves that Windsor Park and Kingspan got government funding. I'm saying they must get that government funding, Stephen, right? And, and I'm saying that the deal of their £62 million more than 10 years ago in today's money is £90 million. I'm talking about the fact that if they get that £90 million, there might be a £110 million shortfall still. That's a pretty serious problem. Uh, you could say it's a scandal. And the other thing I was going to say is that the Irish government has not been slow. Um, some unionists think to show up the UK government with lots of grants coming in and to do with you know medical places and, and that kind of thing in Northern Ireland. Brilliant. And if it is going to be so generous, then and given that it is um, you know not slow to tell us things like we have to have an Irish language act, then if this is of particular value to um, one section of the community. It's not unreasonable then to say, well, would the Irish government like to step in if the GAA is not going to step in? Brendan, if it's not all down to inflation, and it looks like it's not, and if it's public money, how come there could be a hundred-odd million pound shortfall? What's happened to the costs beyond inflation? Um. Stephen, I, I, you know, you're asking me questions that I just don't have the answers to. I'm not a yeah, but it's a fair, but it's a fair question, isn't it? Like, how but does yeah, a yeah. how does a stadium okay. on the same piece of land suddenly short of hundred million? It's, it's not just inflation, Stephen. We know the cost building materials have escalated. We know that that's inflation. Uh, no, it's not. It's more than that. It's more than that. We know the coming out of COVID, for example, building materials and supplies. All, uh, all increased in price way more than uh, inflationary increases. Ben makes a good point about the, the single stadium that was proposed in the, uh, on the main site. Who was the last sporting organisation to walk away from that project? It was the GAA. And in the, in the, in the intervening 10 years, the problems associated with getting Casey Park built, planning issues, residence issues, legal issues, all thankfully now overcome. But to build a stadium which was planned and actually the, the capacity has been reduced now in this, in this iteration of the planning application, to build a stadium that was planned, which is needed, 
Bailey GAA, Bielsa GAA, and Bianton GAA. If the costs have gone up, why should the GAA membership, supporters, followers, players, supporters be penalised because the costs have gone up? It wasn't that, you know, the, the, the project that they made didn't happen. The GAA was all for it happening. It was fully signed up to it, but it didn't happen. And, and the other two then did get their government public funding. That's what happened. And the GAA is not a premiership club, you know, a professional organisation with millions of pounds in the bank. So the GAA is, is as fully, 100% entitled to public funding as the, as, as the other two sports organisations were. I think we'll see something, hopefully this week, certainly over the next couple of weeks, where the Irish government clearly will, will make their contribution, will step up. What's more, what's more of a shared island and if they don't? project than, than, getting, than, than getting casement built? Um, so I think that will happen. And if, I think they, that, if they don't? Well, well, I don't think we're going to be in that situation, Stephen. And do you know what? You see if we can get some... And, and in parallel with that, the money which was promised to soccer clubs, which do need investment uh, in Northern semi-professional soccer clubs, in some cases now professional soccer clubs, but if we can get them some money to get their stadiums uh, uh, improved upon, uh, all the better. All the better. Paul's in County Fermanagh. Morning, Paul. Morning, Stephen. Go ahead. I think the chairman's persons, chairpersons of these football Gaelic clubs, soccer clubs, golf clubs, darts teams, whatever, needs to go, to go pay a visit to each hospital in Northern Ireland and stand before patients and justify spending this type of money when our health service is on its knees. We can't get a dentist. There's children's teeth are rotting out of their head. But here, let's, let's spend 63 multiplied by three on a football pitch. And just well, it's not just a football pitch. You, you look at you look at how much sport contributes to to, to the Stephen, health to Stephen, the hold to, on, hold to the community on, hold on. cohesion. That, sport resonates well beyond a pitch. Stephen, that that snow's uh, melted well off the ditch long ago. At the end of the day, let's deal with what's in front of us at the minute. Let's fix the problems that we have, and then worry about kicking a football around a field. Like, come on, you know what I mean? There's more important things here. There's children's teeth rotting out of their heads. There's education needs. There's children carrying toilet paper to schools because we haven't got enough money to fund them. There's children's after-school clubs. They're doing without lollipop people because they haven't got the money to fund them. But sure, that's and, there, and, there is both the medic- and there is both the mental and physical health benefits from sport. There is the sense of companionship. There is a team. There is a community spirit. My goodness, what does sport do for any community anywhere in the world? You look at it, you assess it, and it is much more uh, that, than you are saying. I, I've been speaking to the Communities Minister Gordon Lyons on Nolan Life on Wednesday nights on the iPlayer about the development of Caseman Park and the attraction of having a stadium ready to host games for Euro 2028. Now as we've been hearing the British and Irish governments have promised some funding for the project. Has Gordon Lyons calculated how much funding we can afford? Look, the first thing to say is that there there was and uh, is an executive commitment to the redevelopment of Casement Park. We've set aside money for that, £62.5 million, and that's still there. That's still the case. We will need additional uh, resource. We don't know the final cost of what that will be. We know that it will be substantially uh, more than what was uh, originally uh, forecast. It will be at least three times that £62 million, Gordon, won't it? Probably well, more. Look, it will be substantial. 
it, it will be substantially uh, more, and I think that's well recognised uh, now. Obviously, for commercial reasons, I can't go into to exact figures, and you'll understand that. But yes, um, there will be additional uh, resource that is going to be uh, required. Uh, the executive have made that commitment. Um, the GAA have uh, made uh, a contribution, uh, and we believe there will be other funders that will will put in a contribution uh, as well. And but right now, we do not have clarity on that. Do you have a list of approved contractors yet? Well, look, all of that is still uh, being discussed uh, at this moment uh, in well, time. Well, it, it, um, it, it can't be being discussed. It, it, it's a simple question, isn't it? Do you have a list of approved contractors? Look, Stephen, I'm not going to go into that uh, right now. Um, but all I can say is that this is depend- dependent on uh, funding, uh, and that funding is currently uh, not there, but, and that's what but, needs to be But if that, if that project is going to... And keep me right here. But if that project is going to be ready for Euro 2028, then the work needs to start in the summer. And, 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 and you can't tell me whether there's even a list of approved contractors. And look, the difficulty comes uh, from the uh, funding issues that are there uh, right now. And that that, that that is what is causing significant uh, difficulties. Uh, it's difficult to progress uh, when you don't have certainty uh, around funding. How hopeful are you that it's going to be ready? Look, that, it's, it's something that is out of my hands. Uh, it's entirely dependent uh, upon the uh, funding being uh, made available. By the, by who? Well, the Irish government have indicated that they are prepared to contribute and you'll have heard the comments from the Secretary of State in the last number of, of weeks as well. But um, we don't have the certainty on what the, the quantum of that funding will be. If they give more than expected... And if the British government gives more than expected, will you find more money too? Well, look, we've been talking tonight about the difficulty, but the difficult budgetary situation that we find ourselves in, and you'll be aware of the of the various um, uh, different pressures that there are on capital budgets uh, right now. You'll also be aware that there was an agreement back in 2011 uh, and that progress in terms of uh, sports stadia and grassroots facilities uh, were agreed on uh, the basis of a fair share uh, among the needs within uh, different sports. And if there were to be additional uh, funding made available for any one sport, you'd have to look at the others uh, as well that are also in need and also looking for investment at this time. That's the new Communities Minister, Gordon Lyons. Good morning, everyone. Thank you very much indeed for joining us today. Thank you for listening to the programme, be it on Radio Ulster, we're the biggest show in the country, be it on BBC Sounds, where there are, look, the figures have been incredible over the last couple of weeks. So thank you if you're deciding to listen to The Nolan Show at a time that suits you. Maybe it's not nine o'clock in the morning, maybe it's at lunchtime, you go out for a run, you go to the gym, you're going to bed, you're going to sleep. You can download The Nolan Show on your BBC Sounds app and listen to it uh, when you want to. If you're sending a story into the programme, nolan at bbc.co.uk. Next... Front page of the Belfast Telegraph, it's a lucid talk poll. Support for the DUP has fallen since their decision to return to Stormont with the UUP and TUV gaining ground. This according to the latest lucid talk poll uh, published by the Belfast Telegraph. This is one poll. Uh, This is what is suggested by the numbers. Doesn't mean that it's for certain. New First Minister Michelle O'Neill saw a rise in her popularity, according to the poll, with her party, Sinn Féin, coming out as the most favoured of those asked. But what does it tell us? What does it suggest with the new 
uh, general election potentially only months away. Ben Laurie is dead with us, editor of the newsletter, Belfast Telegraph correspondent Alison Morris joining us now as well. What are some of the key numbers for you here, Alison? Well, interestingly, if you look at the border poll question today, that that number pretty much over the last five years has stayed the same. It fluctuates by a point or two, but if you drill down into those figures and you look at that 18 to 24-year-old group, the numbers who say that they would want the United Ireland goes right up to 48%. That's really significant in terms of our demographics and the fact that we do have quite a, a large nationalist youth population. And then you think about the other teenagers coming behind them who will be able to vote in any referendum should it happen in 10 years' time. So I think that when you hear people like Marilyn McDonald saying it's within touching distance, they don't mean with the electorate that we have present, but we do. It, is, it does seem, and this is the first, I suppose, poll of that type in 2024, to ask those questions. By going by those figures, it would seem among that younger age bracket that the United Ireland is much more attractive than it maybe would be with the um, ageing population. Ben? Well, the United Ireland figures, um, I mean, I, I would say it, it has been a long time coming. I mean, there's been talk about demographic change in Northern Ireland since its very beginning. And there's undoubtedly been demographic change and there's ongoing demographic change. I think one of the striking things about um, Northern Ireland is how little there has um, in, in the polling, there has been movement on the constitutional question. And actually, also, I think that since uh, Brexit, w- which I was very fearful of from a pro-union perspective, um, the movement has been very small. But there's definitely been movement since Brexit. I think it's probably overall about 4%. So I, d- I don't want to be complacent. I wasn't expecting to, you to ask. Alison obviously talked about that particular statistic. I wasn't expecting you to ask that one. But since we are discussing that one, I don't think unionists can possibly be complacent on this. On the other hand, I think it's all to play for, and people, when they get older, can change and can become more comfortable with the status quo. What about on the on the individuals themselves? Obviously, Sir Geoffrey Donaldson, Alison, interested yeah. in what his his poll numbers uh, within this one poll. We've got to stress, but it is a poll. Uh, what it's suggesting? Uh, what is it suggesting? Uh, Sir Geoffrey Donaldson's popularity is like since he brought the party back in. Yeah, I mean, there was a, was a mixed bag for, for the DUP because it did show the majority of unionists were in favour of the return to Stormont and that, I think, you would see as a positive figure. But then his party dropped four points as well um, from the last poll, which will be concerning, especially when you're coming up to a Westminster election, which is a first-past-the-post election every single point Points and you know even a drop of four or five percent can be um, can lose a seat. So I think that there are things that he'll be taking on board. The popularity question with the leaders was was astounding figures to me. I mean um, Michelle O'Neill's on fifty four percent. I don't think that we've ever had you know a, a leader that popular in terms of those kind of polls. Naomi Long, who was the second most popular in terms of her performance, was a good what fifteen sixteen points behind her. Um, and that, I think that there's a number of reasons for that. And, you know, I was trying to drill down into that over the weekend and, and my analysis of what has, has um, helped sober Michelle O'Neill to be basically Sinn Féin's um, best asset at this point in time in terms of selling their party message. And there's a number of things that really paid off that were quite risky for Sinn Féin at the time. 
mean, attending the Queen's funeral, I don't think was just as risky in terms of showing respect um, and to the death of a, a woman who had done an awful lot in terms of reconciliation here with meeting Martin McGuinness and, um, and everything else that she had done her, her visits to Ireland. But attending the King's coronation, that's a celebration. You know, that isn't showing you respect. That, that then takes it into a different, I suppose, um, realm. And that was, was risky for them in terms of their voter base, but it really seems to have paid off. Um, and in terms of her personal um, image and how she is seen by the, the public, her personal popularity is off the charts, really, in terms of like political leaders, because these things go up and down. Jeffrey Donaldson's just behind Naomi Long, just two points behind her. Um, it wasn't a, a terrible win, but it wasn't a great one either. Um, um, and I think it's the, the 4% drop is interesting, because that is those hardliners within the DUP who didn't want that deal. And Ben, Alison is writing in, in, in the Belfast Telegraph uh, today, Donaldson faces bumpy ride as rivals seek to pounce on shortcomings of agreement. Do you think he's in for a bumpy ride, or actually has it not been as bumpy as many people predicted? Oh, I think it's been as bump-free as it could possibly have been for Sir Geoffrey Donaldson. I mean, I think one of the things that's striking about what's happened in recent weeks is that we had a situation where 73%, according to, uh, I think it was also a lucid talk poll, of DUP supporters were endorsing their strategy of staying out. And now only a quarter of DUP voters are unhappy with the return. And I think that comes back to something that I was saying there about status quo and so on. That's something that that uh, is something unions can be hopeful for. People often go with the status quo. People who maybe don't follow politics very closely, they are DUP so- supporters or Sinn Féin supporters. You know, they, they um, the, the analogy might be um, something like Sinn Féin going to the so, the, the, the coronation, um, who, when the party does it, they are then themselves persuaded. So Alison, they think it's okay. So Alison, Ben disagrees with you. He says bump bump free. You think he's in for a very bumpy ride? Why, Donaldson? Oh, no, well, you see, if you <laughs> if you read um, my column, what I said is this has been quite an easy process for him to now. Yeah, but I think that the road ahead is, is full of potholes in terms of what could possibly happen from now on because this is the thing. People genuinely did support a return to Stormont. Our, you know, our public services are an absolute shambles. The pay increases need sorted out, all of that. And I think that most people are on board for that. But there's two things going to happen going to happen here. And that is that this deal isn't going to deliver everything that he has promised it's going to deliver. There's going to be, obviously, extreme financial pressures in terms of what's coming down the road for um, the executive. And if all of that doesn't pay, pay out, he risks being the person who's blamed in that. But also in terms of, I suppose, if you were to look at it in terms of preserving the union, making Northern Ireland look like it's working and not what it has looked like for the past couple of years, which was basically like a failed experiment, is, is good long term in terms of the future of Northern Ireland, how long you can preserve it within the, um, the union. And, you know, demographics will decide that and people's voting patterns will decide that. But most people if things are moving quite slowly I think older people especially will go for the status quo in terms of that but then you have to ask yourself what is Jeffrey Donaldson the leader of so is, is is his job to be the leader of unionism and preserve the UK or is it to be the leader of the DUP and stay that for as long as possible because the both things may not um, may not run alongside each other. Alison Ben thank you very much thank you. Next the US and UK ambassadors to Moscow have laid flowers to honour Alexei Navalny the Russian opposition leader who died in prison in Siberia on Friday. 
Navalny's allies believe he was murdered on the orders of President Vladimir Putin. Prison authorities say he suffered sudden death syndrome. Navalny's body has not yet been returned to his family. His wife, Yulia, is in Brussels today to meet with EU foreign ministers. Stephen Sakur is a BBC journalist and presenter of Hard Talk. He interviewed Mr Navalny back in 2017 and he said it was an extraordinary meeting. Alexei Navalny was under enormous pressure uh, long before he was poisoned with Novichok in 2020. So I saw him three years before that poisoning. And I remember going out to his anti-corruption foundation office uh, in a suburb of Moscow, and it was very obvious uh, that the pressure was beginning to tell. His office had just been raided uh, a few days before I got there. They were replacing the door, which had been beaten down by officials who'd raided the, the foundation looking for incriminating documents and laptop computers. So they had to replace the door. They'd hired some private security, but all of the staff were on edge because they knew that they were all being surveilled, they were being followed, and Navalny in particular knew that uh, you know he was very likely to be facing very serious criminal charges in the near future. His brother, interestingly enough, was also being persecuted by the authorities at the time, and the brother was being pressured to give dirt on Navalny himself. He told me all of this, but he also said, look, there is no way I am going to stop the work I'm doing. And I I think it's really important to remember that we call him an opposition leader, but Navalny's main commitment was exposing the vast web of corruption around Putin and his associates. You remember one of the most famous campaigns he ran was exposing the hundreds of millions of US dollars that Putin had spent on this vast sprawling palace on the Black Sea. Uh, And he knew that this was a route to uh, Russian hearts and minds because his message was simple. Putin and his associates are stealing your money. And it was a very powerful message and a message that Putin was determined to silence. And and how much damage did that do Putin at the time? Was it believed? Presumably it didn't reach state TV, for example. No, it certainly didn't reach state TV, but Navalny was a very savvy guy. He and his mostly young crew in the Anti-Corruption Foundation were very adept at using social media. And, you know, Russians have social media just like we do. And I'm talking now about 2017. By then you know, uh, Navalny could get his message out to many millions of Russians by using social media. And that was his main platform, to be honest. As you say, no way he was going to ever get an appearance on state TV. Uh, Russia controls the information space as best it can. But the internet has provided young people uh, with different sources of information. And Navalny used that. And, and and that property empire that, that you described, Navalny exposed, what else did he expose Putin being up to? I suppose if I were to put it in a nutshell, uh, Navalny's message was that to understand Putin, you didn't really need to see him just as a political leader. You needed to see him as a mafia boss. And mafia bosses maintain and extend their authority by using violence, by imposing their will through violence. And I think 
money and violence were the keys to Navalny's, you know, interpretation of Putin's power base. Uh, he was very adept at unearthing the foreign assets, for example, of key figures in the Putin regime, the biggest businessmen, uh, some of the political associates inside the Kremlin, all of them have vast amounts of wealth stashed overseas. And somehow, because he had some people who were sympathetic to him, I think, uh, working inside, you know, accounting firms and financial organizations, Navalny managed to unearth some really pretty extraordinary and incriminating facts about many people close to Putin. I think you described him earlier, Stephen, as, as clever. How stupid was it going back to Russia? Well, you know, that it's, that it's the most interesting human question about Navalny. Uh, why, when he'd been poisoned, and it was pretty much a miracle that he survived that poisoning, and he was, you know, for reasons that are quite hard to understand, he was then allowed to leave Russia to get this special medical treatment in Germany. Why on earth did he insist on going back? I, I think it's true to say that there was some pretty strong pressure from his family not to go back. But he said that there was no use uh, talking the talk of standing up and confronting Putin and his criminality, no use talking about it without acting. And he felt he could only act as a realistic, credible opposition figure inside the country. And he said, you know, that in the end, all it takes for tyranny to thrive is for people to stay quiet. And he wasn't prepared to stay quiet and he wasn't prepared to stay in exile. And therefore, I think one has to say, and I, I say it, I've said it to others today, he is, if not the most, one of the most courageous people I've ever met and had the privilege to interview. He, he, he radiated a determination, a courage, and, you know, he wasn't a saint, Stephen. He absolutely wasn't a saint. He had some views in, what way? in his past. Well, he had some views in his past that some people uh, inside and outside Russia found pretty repellent. You know, he was in some ways a populist and a nationalist. He, he wanted to be a successful popu uh, popular leader. And he understood the Russian people, I think. And I think it is fair to say in Russia, nationalism is a pretty, a pretty strong political brand. So, for example, um, he was, he'd said some pretty derogatory things about Muslims, which plays well to a large part of the Russian population. When Putin first uh, invaded and then annexed Crimea, Navalny indicated that he could live with that, that he felt it was truly Russian territory. He then backtracked on that later, it has to be said, and certainly opposed the all-out invasion of Ukraine in 2022. But some of those who are outside Russia always felt that Navalny skirted with a sort of dangerous form of Russian populism stroke nationalism. For me, having thought quite a lot about Navalny, I feel that he... He saw that those Russian uh, would-be opposition leaders who were, let's say, from the upper middle class, weren't connecting with ordinary Russian people inside that vast country. And he wanted to connect with those people. So he took some positions that, let's say, 
Khodorkovsky, the big businessman who's now in exile, or Garry Kasparov, the chess grandmaster who's also a Russian opposition leader in exile, they never connected with the Russian people in the way that Navalny did. The, 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 the groundswell of support that we saw um, for Navalny, um, where are, I, I understand that some of, the, some of the, the leaders against Putin are in exile or indeed in prison or dead, but those mm. thousands and thousands of ordinary citizens who were supporting Navalny, are they in mm. hiding? Will, will, will they just be yeah. terrified to ever speak out They're, again? They're mostly terrified. They're mostly feeling that silence is their only option. Uh, I don't know, Stephen, if you've had time tonight to be on social media and looking at some of the pictures that are coming uh, from different Russian cities where those brave individuals who are out marking Navalny's death with uh, you know, flowers and trying to attend vigils, they are being rounded up and arrested this is the reality. And, and, and just, you know, again, I'm thinking about um, the, the Russian leaders, would-be leaders of opposition that, that I have encountered over many years. Boris Nemtsov is another. He was an extraordinarily charismatic, would-be leader of the Rup Russian opposition. Uh, I met him uh, more than a decade ago. He took me to his home. We spent a lot of time chatting. Uh, I felt at the time, you know, here's a guy who really is prepared to challenge Putin. And guess what? He was shot dead, assassinated 200 yards from the walls of the Kremlin. So, you know, over many years with many individuals, the state or those operating for the state have rubbed out eliminated those who look like being uh, credible leaders of a Russian opposition movement. Why did they leave Navalny in prison uh, rather than assassinate him quickly? Yeah, it's a great question. And I, I can't get inside the mind of Putin or his closest associates. I mean, there, there are several things that are really quite hard to understand. It's hard to understand when in 2020 they went through this elaborate plot to poison the guy with Novichok, one of the most dangerous substances on earth, they almost achieved it. They poisoned him. But then the plane that he was a passenger on when he was going through what looked like his death throes made an emergency landing. And then he was taken to hospital, given some care. And then it was agreed that he would be allowed to be rushed to Germany for special medical treatment. You know, if they were trying to kill him, which they clearly were, why did they then let him out of the country to Germany? That's really hard to understand. And then, as you say, when he made that decision, which I've called brave and some would say was sort of suicidal, to return to uh, Moscow, they very swiftly got together some, you know, charges of financial malpractice and, and then added on other things too. They locked him up, put him into the harshest, most brutal penal system with solitary confinement, with uh, freezing temperatures, really trying to destroy the guy. But they didn't actually destroy him, you know, they, and they actually allowed him to uh, get messages out to the wider world through his lawyers, which were extraordinarily strident, you know, critiques of Putin and his invasion of Ukraine. And these messages kept coming out. And you kept thinking, you know, if they're 
prepared to do all of this to Navalny, why are they letting his voice still emerge via his lawyers? And as you say, you know, for the best part of three years, he did survive. So then why kill him now? I mean, you know, there are lots of things that we can't truly understand about this. And I guess we'll never know. Uh, we can just speculate, Stephen, how he was treated while in jail over the last three years. And, and maybe it well, was to some sadistic pleasure of Putin uh, that this guy was, was, was treated so badly. Yeah, I mean, we do know that the, the treatment was appalling. Uh, I, I became quite friendly with uh, one of the women who, who was very senior in, in the continuation in exile of his anti-corruption foundation, Maria Pevchik. And Maria would tell me what she'd heard from his lawyer, who you know was allowed very limited access to Navalny. She would tell me uh, some of the things she'd heard about the conditions he was in, and you know it, it and what was, was that. Stephen? Can you share it with us? Well, just it was it was the absolute isolation, total isolation. Uh, he would he would be accused and and convicted within the penal system of malpractices, you know, answering back to guards or not uh, obeying the letter of particular sort of regulations. And he would be put in this sort of black hole for weeks on end, uh, deprived of light at very low temperatures. Don't forget, for a lot of the time, he was in these Arctic penal colonies uh, in the far north, which, you know, through the winters are absolutely freezing uh, in thin clothing. To be honest, it is amazing he survived, given his weakness after the poisoning, uh, for as long as he did. He's an extraordinarily resilient guy. I mean, uh, he's a big guy. And, you know, when he was well, he was a very physically imposing guy. But uh, I can only imagine the the extraordinary suffering that he has endured over the last three years. Is it possible, Stephen, he's still alive? <laughs> Again, Stephen, you're, you're sort of asking me if I can be categorical about anything in Putin's Russia, and I just can't. Obviously, I don't have any special knowledge. I mean, I visit the country, although I'm not, allowed, you know, I'm not able to visit at the moment. But, um, I, you know... I, What's I your think, gut instinct? Is it better is it Yeah, better no, question? my... my, my my gut instinct is he's dead. Uh, I, I, I would think he's dead. Uh, you know, I don't see what upside at all there would be for the Russian authorities to announce that he's dead and then have to reveal at a later point that actually they were bluffing or lying and that he's not really dead. Uh, wh wh where's, the, where's the benefit for them in that? I mean, it's, they're being brutally criticized, in, in, certainly in the West, as a result of Navalny's death. But then to say, actually, we were lying about that and he's still alive and he's still in so solitary confinement is hardly going to make them look any better. So I, I think he's dead. And final question, Stephen. How should he be remembered? I, I would say that at a time when we, you know, there is so much focus on what Vladimir Putin has done to Russia, what Vladimir Putin's intentions are for the future of his country with regard to its neighbors and his apparent obsession with Russian history, Russian expansionism and restoring a greater Russia, 
I think what, what Navalny has done is force us all to think about how to confront the challenge and the danger that Putin represents. And if there's one word that describes him more than any other, it's courage. That's the BBC, Stephen Sakur. Thank you for your company today. We'll continue talking on Twitter at Stephen Nolan. We'll see you back for Nolan at nine tomorrow morning at nine. Have a good day, everyone. Thanks very much. The biggest show in the country. Listen again on BBC Sounds. Tweet at Stephen Nolan.